What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hey y'all, and welcome to Texla True Crime, the podcast covering homicides, missing people, and well, anything else that I want to talk about in my home states of Texas and Louisiana. I'm Lisa, your host, and I try to keep my language PG, but every now and then a swear or two might slip out. The sources that I used to write this episode will be in a Google Doc that I will link to in the show notes. And due to the subject matter of this show, please use caution when listening around your kids. There are a variety of animals and children who run this household who may be in and out while I'm recording, so there may be the occasional animal noises or request for money. If you have any corrections or comments or just want to say hey, my contact information will be listed at the end of the episode. Today is part two of two and the conclusion to last week's episode. Well, I probably tipped y'all off when I said part two of two, but here we are. Last time, we went over the day 39-year-old Lake Charles resident Brian Davis was killed and the investigation into the murder. He was found on a rural road in Lake Charles near the water next to his car with four gunshot wounds. The initial theory was that he was surprised by an assailant while he was working to change a tire. During investigation in the following weeks, several inconsistencies about the whereabouts of his wife, Robin Little Davis, and her best friend, Carol Sissy Saltzman, and other circumstantial evidence came to light. As such, we ended last week's episode with the news that Robin and Sissy were arrested for the crime six months after Brian's death. Let's now turn to the narratives presented at trial by the prosecution and defense. November 7, 2011 was the day the jury was selected for Robin's trial. Jury selection was wrapping up, but not yet concluded on November 10th. In spite of this, the testimony of one of the state's witnesses, Roxanne Baumgarten, or Baumgartner, both spellings are listed in court documents, so I'm saying both, so I'm half right, had her testimony perpetuated before the court. Perpetuating someone's testimony means that it's being taken ahead of when they would normally testify in court. They aren't expected to be available at that time due to health issues, unavoidable travel, etc., And although both sides do have a chance to question the witness, it's just not the same as having someone there live during trial. Things happen during trial. New revelations come to light and strategies for presenting the narrative change on the fly as testimony of witnesses unfolds. So it's rather unusual that this was allowed. I also need to add that we are in Louisiana where Napoleonic law abounds and not the common law system that we have in the remainder of the states. Maybe doing perpetuated testimony is more widely done in Louisiana than it is in my experience as a Texas trial paralegal. Deputy Baumgartner, as I will refer to her from now on as an homage to my favorite chili-spilling accountant, was a medical legal death investigator with the sheriff's office. 
she testified about possible contamination of the crime scene. To refresh your recollection, the Honda was found with its trunk open and the lug nuts removed on the allegedly defective tire. Deputy Vezinot removed the tire, placed it in the trunk, and then closed it for safekeeping on its journey to the tire shop to be evaluated. The problem with this is any evidence on the outside of the trunk could have been transferred to the interior of the trunk or even knocked off with the force of the truck shutting. Likewise, handling the tire before it was examined by crime scene investigators could have transferred or destroyed potential evidence. The next day, on November 11th, Prosecutor Rick Bryant requested a continuance of trial due to some health issues he was facing. Defendants objected strenuously to both Deputy Baumgartner's perpetuated testimony and the requested continuance. The judge ruled in favor of the prosecution on both issues. In January of 2012, the defense brought before the judge a motion to quash the indictment, claiming that since a jury had been seated and testimony given, any further prosecution would be double jeopardy. The judge said double jeopardy did not apply in this situation because the same jury would be seated, making it a trial recess and not a true second trial. Another issue with Deputy Baumgartner is that the state knew what they would have to work on to limit the damage done by her acknowledgement of mishandled evidence at the murder scene. The recess gave them time to work on how they would minimize the deficiencies brought up during her testimony. However, when trial began on April 23rd of 2012, several of the original jurors were not available. The entire pool was excused and a new jury seated. Additionally, Instead of using the perpetuated testimony of Deputy Baumgartner, they called her back live. This continues to be one of the main issues of contention in post-trial appeals. I've linked to opinions on various appellate courts in my source document. I'm watering down the issues quite a bit because, frankly, I don't understand more than the broad strokes myself. Basically, this trial didn't even start without huge procedural issues, which isn't where anyone wants to be at the start of a trial. Trial did progress with both Robin and Sissy being tried before the same jury panel. The trial itself took 13 days. Let's now go through the presentations of the prosecution and the defense. The state's theory of how Brian's murder occurred went like this. So Brian took Robin's trailblazer to work that morning because Sissy had their accord, ostensibly because the Jetta was having some sort of battery issue. Brian comes home from work. He and Robin go shopping for boats. While shopping, Sissy called to tell Robin that she'd broken down in the Accord and needed help. And Brian agreed that, of course, they would go help their good friend, Robin's best friend. Brian and Robin left Jerry's Marine and went to Wagon Reel Road, not far from where he had prior meetups with his mistress, Fanny, not far from where the couple and Sissy had spent time fishing. Brian gets out of the trailblazer and checks on the Accord. He likely went to work trying to figure out what the exact problem was but was interrupted when Robin, or Sissy, or Hell, both taking turns, fire four shots into his back, one striking his head and the rest his torso. Prosecution believes he was shot with his own Springfield XD-9 pistol, loaded with hydroshock bullets like those found in the trailblazer. Robin and or Sissy then unbuckled his belt, removed his shoes and one of his socks to make it appear as though maybe he was meeting someone for sex and was interrupted, And to cover all of their bases and make it look like a robbery also, they took his cash, gun, laptop, GPS device, and wallet, leaving his license so that he could be easily identified. The women left in the trailblazer and ran errands to establish their alibi. They returned to the Davis home. 
Robin continued to establish her appearance as a worried wife, calling to report Brian missing, phoning his boss the next day to see if he'd arrived at work, and calling the police again requesting a report be taken as it had been more than 24 hours since he'd gone missing. After confirmation of his death, the grieving widow and her best friend would have a great windfall of between about $645,000 and $750,000 in life insurance. How did the prosecution support this theory? Let's start with the crime scene. The flat tire that Brian appeared to be changing was taken to Southern Tire Mart and examined. The tire had no defects. It was as if someone intentionally let the air out to feign trouble or let the air out afterwards to make it appear that that's why the car was at the end of that road. Bullets recovered from Brian's body were consistent with bullets found in Robin's trailblazer. Babette Bartholomew, Robin Davis's mother and possessor of probably the most amazing Southern name ever, gave a statement that she put $4,000 into a new account for Robin around the time of the funeral, but definitely after Brian had died. Robin told Babette that detectives would not allow her to use her account as they wanted to watch activity on Brian's card. But at trial, Babette testified that the money was put in the account before Brian's body had even been found. Detective Young testified that the financial record showed the deposit was made on July 1st, the day Brian's body was found. Logically, one would think that Shane Dietz, the husband of Brian's co-worker and sexual partner, would make a good suspect in Brian's death. Cell phone records show that neither Shane nor Fanny were in the Lake Charles area on the day of the death. Shane's boss confirmed that he was at work when Brian disappeared. A forensic analyst with the Southwest Louisiana Crime Lab testified about the tests that she'd run on the crime scene items. She testified that there was no blood available due to the amount of decomposition. However, DNA taken from Brian's belt, driver's license, fingernails, and a bottle cap were from the same male profile which she attributed to the victim. The tech testified that no female DNA was found on his body. Okay, I'm just going to interject a little bit here. How were they not able to get Brian's DNA? Surely he still had some hair. If not hair, why didn't police take his freaking toothbrush? I'm not going to pretend that I know the procedures of the Lake Charles Police Department or the Calcasieu Parish Sheriff's Office, excuse me, but it just seems insane to me that they couldn't get any DNA to officially compare with the male DNA found on the victim. The state put on a crime scene reconstruction expert, George Shiro. He stated that the Honda was not muddy and therefore must have been on scene before 3.45 p.m. when meteorological records show that the rain began that day. He testified that Brian had an air compressor in his truck. Shiro felt the presence of the compressor lent further credence to the theory that the scene was staged. Logically, if you have a flat tire and access to a compressor, you'd use that first to see if it would inflate the tire enough to get you to a repair shop. That would be preferable to immediately going through the laborious process of changing a tire in the hottest part of a summer day. We haven't even discussed the mosquitoes that would be buzzing around so near the water. No, the compressor would have been used first. Since there were no defects in the tire, it would have worked, and there would have been no reason for Brian to remove the lug nuts. And why were his shoes off and his belt unbuckled? Was he planning to cheat on Robin and decided he would pass the time waiting on his lady by changing a tire? And then he was somehow distracted and then killed by a random passerby? It just doesn't really seem to make sense. But life is chaotic and often doesn't make sense.
I mean, hello, Exhibit A, 2020. The prosecution spent much of the time going through the cell phone pings of the victim, Robin, and Sissy. I'm going to go through them as straightforwardly as possible, but if I confuse y'all, again, you can look at the court records in my source document to see if you can untangle the web. I am not going to go through the arguments about how your cell pings pick which tower, how far you can really be from it, and all that. Obviously, the prosecution's experts said that they had to be in the exact area, and the defense experts said no, they could be where they said they were while pinging off of these farther towers. There's also surveillance footage from a couple of places, and I'll mention that too as we go along. So let's go back to Sunday, June 28th, the Sunday before the murder, when Sissy, Robin, and Brian were all at the Davis home grilling and hanging out around the pool all day until Sissy went to leave around midnight, realizing her car wouldn't start, and she then had to borrow the Accord. But if that's really what happened, why then, at 5 o'clock on the 28th, did Robin call Sissy's cell phone? Sissy's phone pinged off a tower in Hackberry, Louisiana. Just happened to be the tower that served the area where Brian was killed. Robin called Sissy again at 626. Robin's phone pinged off the tower closest to Jerry's Marine, where she and Brian would boat shop the following day. Brian called Robin at 7.31 p.m. His call originated from the tower nearest his house, and Robin's phone pinged off a tower off Elliott Road, the same tower used when she called Stephanie Wells the following day, and it's about four miles south of Sissy's house. And just to refresh from last week, here's Robin's account of the day that Brian went missing. Sissy's is a little bit different, but I'm going to use Robin's as the quote-unquote official timeline. In part one, I detail Sissy's statement if you need a refresher. So here we go. Sissy took the Accord home because the Jetta's battery had run down due to her leaving the lights on. Brian takes Robin's trailblazer to work. In the early morning, Robin jumpstarts the Jetta and takes it to the drugstore Walgreens. After getting home from Walgreens, she called Sissy to tell her that the Jetta was in good shape and could be picked up. Brian comes home around 11. He and Robin head out in the trailblazer to go look at boats. Sissy comes and drops off the Accord and picks up the Jetta while the couple are out shopping. Brian and Robin return around 3 o'clock, and Brian heads off in the Accord to Beaumont. Robin takes the trailblazer to pick up Sissy, who is still getting ready. Sissy and Robin run errands between 4 and 5, arriving back at the Davis home around 5 or 5.30. Robin spoke with Brian once while they were running errands, and he was driving to Beaumont, and she left several voicemails for him with no response. She calls the police that night to report him missing. They say he's got to be missing for 24 hours. She calls his boss the next day and learns he didn't arrive at work. And finally, an officer comes out on the afternoon of the 30th to take the missing person report. All right, let's go through what the cell towers and video footage show where the ladies were that day and when. Video from Walgreens shows Robin and Sissy there together at 8.52 a.m. The time matches Robin's story but definitely not the fact that Sissy was with her at the time. Sissy never mentioned going to the drugstore at all. At 11.18 that morning, Sissy is on camera at the shop right near her home. So she's not home as she was supposed to be at that time. But when Robin calls Sissy at 11.25, Sissy's phone is picked up at the cell tower 100 yards from her house. So maybe Sissy just ran out quickly and forgot about the little trip. It happens. Maybe she also forgot to mention that she made a phone call to Robin at 1.38 p.m. that pinged off the Hackberry Tower, the tower nearest the murder site. 
This tower is 26 miles from her home, where, again, she was said to be all afternoon. Between 2.41 and 3.08 p.m., Robin's phone had five calls. Three were with Sissy. Cell tower data and video footage place Robin and Brian at Jerry's Marine in Sulphur. Sissy's phone pinged off a tower near the Lake Charles Airport for the 2.41 call. That tower is about six miles from Sissy's home. Her 3.01 call with Robin began at the airport, and by the time it ended, Sissy's call pinged off the tower near her home. Robin and Brian allegedly arrive home around 3, and then she went on alone to get Sissy for errands while Brian headed to Beaumont. So, Robin calls her roommate at 3.50, and the phone pings off the Elliott Road Tower, which is about 4 or 5 miles south of Sissy's. But strangely, when Brian's phone made a two-second phone call at 3.44, it pinged off the same tower, not on a tower miles away on the interstate heading towards Beaumont. Also, in spite of Robin claiming she left lots of voicemails for Brian, she didn't actually call his phone between 3 p.m. and 5.58 p.m. There were no voicemails on his phone from Robin between 3 o'clock on June 29th and 9.20 a.m. on July 4th. We have video footage again at 4.40 showing both Sissy and Robin at the AAA cleaners fitting into their given timeline. So what do you think? Is this evidence that the ladies set Brian up to be killed on that deserted road? Or is this an overzealous prosecution making the evidence fit? Let's talk about some other things that the defense brought to light. Remember Shane and Fanny Dietz? Shane was alibied by his boss by being at work, but his phone had no activity between 2.50 p.m. and 10.54 p.m. Likewise, Fanny's phone had no activity between 9.28 a.m. and 4.56 p.m. Did they just not use their phones while they were working? Brian's buckle was undone and his shoes were off. Had Fanny set him up with the promise of a rendezvous so that Shane could exact his revenge? A tip was called into Crime Stoppers after Brian's body was found. The caller said that he saw a red F-150 truck on Wagon Wheel Road on June 30th. This is the day after Brian was killed. You'll never guess what Shane Dietz drives. A red Ford F-150. Defense counsel argued that the timeline was just a little bit too tight for them to be running all over and then everybody meeting up at the wagon wheel and then making it back to town to run errands. One of their other arguments was that Robin wasn't exactly dressed for murder. She was wearing white capris and flip-flops, not exactly attire you would wear in a marshy area. I'm not quite sure that I think that's a good defense argument. Since prosecutors theorized that she was riding in the trailblazer until they went to rescue Sissy at the location, she wouldn't have been, like, bushwhacking through swamps or anything. And it's also very possible that I'm completely missing the significance, and it's a great defense argument. At the close of the 13-day trial, the jury voted 11-1 to to convict them both of second-degree murder. They were sentenced to life in prison with hard labor without probation, parole, or the chance of a suspended sentence. Louisiana is one of the few states that allows a less-than-unanimous jury verdict in murder trials. They did overrule that on death penalty cases in, I believe, 2018, but I'm not sure about the life sentences. If I didn't have to get going on cleaning my house today, I'd look it up, so that's y'all's homework. Sissy and Robin remain in prison. They filed appeals claiming that the prosecution withheld items of evidence that the gun analysis, the forensic analysis, the cell phone tower analysis was flawed, 
the testimony of Deputy Baumgartner and the continuance and the first trial is flawed. But as of this recording, nothing has been granted in their favor. They do not waver in claiming their innocence, and there is a large amount of supporters for the women. And you know, it always strikes me that a trial isn't really a pursuit of justice. It's a pursuit by each side to get their strongest evidence in front of the jury that supports their narrative. So much is left out, so I'm not sure that anyone can ever really deliver a fully informed and just verdict. What do y'all think? Did the jury get this one right? Or are there two innocent women behind bars that really shouldn't be, and they should be out enjoying their families? Please let me know. You can get in touch with me by email at texlatruecrimepod at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at texlatruecrime, Instagram at texlatruecrimepod, and on Facebook as Lisa Texla. Finally, if you'd like to support my little independently produced podcast, you can do so at paypal.me forward slash texlatruecrime. I would appreciate y'all subscribing, and if you're willing, I would love a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the platform of your choice to get word of my little show out there. It really does help. And also, I want to take a moment to remember my dad today. Tomorrow will be his second anniversary. To my family and friends, my love to you for all of the support as we've walked through this. To my mom, you are the strongest and most gracious person I know. And I'm so very lucky to have you as a role model. To my children, your poppy would be, and I believe is, so very proud of the men that you're becoming. And to my brother, I'm pretty sure that I'm still the favorite. Last year, my friend Kim from People Are Wild and I recorded a two-hour episode about grief. And this year, we have a little something planned, but I promise it will be much, much lighter. Happy holidays, y'all. Let's leave the world a little bit better than you found it this morning. Be kind. Listen to science. And always, always, always watch out for motorcycles on the road. Bye, y'all. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.